Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Mike. I am your new youth pastor, and I have the, uh, the joy and honor to bring to you the Word of God this morning. I do just want to take a moment and just uh, tell Pastor Kirk thank you for this opportunity. Since my wife and I and our family are new to you, I thought I'd share this story about how I met my wife. I grew up in Columbus. Uh, my parents are, and uh, they're members of the First Alliance Church in Columbus, so I grew up in that church. Sarah's dad got hired to be the uh, children's um, family pastor. Uh, so when Sarah was about 10 years old, she moved from Iowa to Columbus. Now, I'm almost four years older uh, than Sarah. So when you're in like middle school and high school, that's kind of a, a big difference there, okay? So growing up, we knew of each other, um, but we didn't run into the same circles. Now, there's a daycare that's attached and associated with the church called Sunshine Nursery School. After I graduated from high school, um, I started working there, and I, gradu- and I worked there until I graduated uh, my undergrad at Otterbein College. When Sarah graduated from high school, uh, she started working there as well. And in the summer of 2004, we were placed in the same classroom together, same school-age classroom together, as teachers for the summer. And that's, that's where the magic happened, <laughs> right? I got to spend hours and hours with her. And I got, began to see just how beautiful and caring and how fun and, and loud and uh, passionate she was. And I started to develop these feelings for her that went beyond friendship. Now, once I developed these feelings, I, I suppose there was you know, two options. Option number one is, uh, is this idea of self-preservation, right? To ma- remain quiet, to not say anything about my feelings and just remain friends. Or two, I could pursue her right, to put those feelings into action and to see if there was something bigger and better for us. And I chose a second. And I found out that she had feelings for me too. And over the next several weeks and months, uh, we went on dates and we spent time with each other's families. We learned about each other. And the rest is, as they say, history. We just had our 15th wedding anniversary on June 24th. So if I, if we didn't put action behind those feelings, we would have missed out on each other, and we would have missed out on this amazing gift and blessing from God. That same thing is true when it comes to our faith in Christ. You see, genuine faith acts on God's word, right? It is put into action. It is lived out. It's in the doing that brings spiritual growth and blessing, That's what the author James was trying to communicate to the early church. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. And I'm going to give you some context and some background here. This book of James is written by the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes the chief elder, the chief leader in the Jerusalem church after the apostle Peter moves on. And James is writing to the Jewish followers of Jesus at a very early stage in the Christian history. It's around AD 45 through 49. It's only about 10 to 15 years after the death of Christ. So the church was experiencing persecution and conflict and famine and poverty. And in the midst of all of that that was going on, some of these believers, they were not living out their faith. So James writes this letter to these Jesus followers there to challenge how they lived, and to remind them that their faith needs to be put into action. 
So I'm going to start reading in James chapter 1, verse 22, and uh, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, don't, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So James is telling his listeners that too many of them are being foolish when it comes to the word of God. That it's simply not enough to hear the words of God, the commands of God, the promises of God. You need actions. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Hearing is not the same as doing. Right? Parents, right? You understand this. I could tell my son to please, you know, eat your vegetables, right? And he can shake his head and he can give me a thumbs up and he can even say, Dad, I hear you. But if he actually doesn't eat his vegetables, then I'm not satisfied with him, right? He's not being obedient and it profits him nothing, Right? Too, many li- too many listeners of James's, they treated the Bible, the word of God, this way. They would shake their heads yes, and they would give it a thumbs up, and then they would walk away, and they would not do what it says to do. So James bluntly tells them that if they think they're spiritual just by hearing the words of God, then they are deceived, deluded. They're wrong. They're foolish. See, without doing what it says, it profits you nothing. So in order to help his listeners understand this even further, James uses this this word picture of a mirror, right? Comparing the word of God to a mirror. Now, the main purpose of a mirror is examination, right? Self-examination. You know, I I tend to wake up in the mornings looking kind of messy, right? The hair does this kind of thing right? You got a little drool around the mouth. You got eye crusties. I mean, it is, it's a mess. Looking into the mirror, though, it only reveals these blemishes and these imperfections. It only reveals them, right? It only reflects what is there. The, the mirror itself does nothing to actually change what is wrong. I'm the one who has to act on what the mirror reveals. I have to fix the mess, See, some of these Jewish Christians in the early church to whom James is writing to, and even some of us still presently, we look in the mirror and we see blemishes and imperfections. We see the mess. And we refuse to do anything about it. I mean, how crazy is that? To look in the mirror that is God's word and to make no changes in your life. One of the beautiful things of about the word of God, besides the fact that it reveals the character and the person of God, is that it gives us an accurate reflection of ourselves. In church, we, have, we all right, have so many areas in our lives where we need to address and change in, or, or in order to be more like Jesus. And I am thankful that he gave us his word. I'm grateful that his word brings redemption and it sets us free. And I am indebted to the fact that, that God loves me, right? And he provides a way for me to make me more like him through his word. Let's look at verse 26 here. 
says, if you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So true religion, pure religion, it isn't about ceremonies and temples and upholding religious laws and special days as some of the early church was making it out to be. It's not a task list that we check off. All right, I went to church today. I listened to the preacher. Uh, I gave some money. Oh, bingo. I'm good to go today. No. You see, James is telling us that pure religion, true faith, it is brought to life in our lives in three distinct ways. In your speech, in your service, and in your separation from the world. And we're going to briefly talk about these. The early church must have had a serious problem with speech. Right, James addresses speech often in this letter to the early church. He mentions that in chapter one, that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And now in chapter two, that we need to control the tongue. And he actually is gonna go into further detail in chapter three about controlling the tongue. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 18, 21 that the tongue has the power of life and death. Our speech, knowing what to say and where to say it and when to say it. It has the power to lift up and to tear down. Some of you know firsthand and have experienced how devastating and damaging speech can be. You know, just last week I was, I was rushing around and trying to get ready to go to work and, and my wife, she spoke words to me that I perceived as spoken with attitude. And I immediately responded with attitude and, and I raised the level of my voice and, and I left angry. And it ate me up. I was stewing over my words and it ruined me and I had to call her and I had to apologize for how I responded. I hate it when I do that. I am very aware of the power of my words and the way that I relate to my wife, especially to my kids. Right, with a few words, I can bring them great joy in life or I can simply crush them. I pray, church, that we are men and women who control our tongues for the sake of Christ and for his kingdom. May we bring life to people and not death. Another tangible way that we live out our faith is in acts of service. James mentions orphans and widows here in the text because these are the most obvious poor in the first century, right? Widows, for example, they had no access to inheritance. They couldn't get jobs. And if a family member refused to take care of them, man, then they were reduced to begging or, or selling themselves as slaves or starvation, much like that of orphans. Think of the story of Ruth and Naomi here but by caring for widows and orphans and the poor, the church was putting God's word into practice. And yes, taking care of hurting and broken people is stressful and hard and overwhelming, and you can insert your own description here. But nonetheless, we are called to be involved. So let me ask, church, how are you involved? 
Do you respond and care for the hurt and broken as Christ himself set the example? The third way that James informs us that faith comes alive in our lives is by refusing to let the world corrupt you. And once again, yes, this world is messy and broken and evil. But James is not calling us to be removed from the world as some might like, as some might feel safer. He's calling us, like Jesus himself called his disciples in John 17, to be in the world, but not of the world. So as Jesus did, as his disciples were told, and and now us, we need to live in this world. We engage this world. We walk daily in this world and we look for ways to partner and participate in this world. And we can do that without being influenced and driven by the world, just like Jesus. Jesus himself was holy and spotless and he was 100% human. He had this purifying effect on the world and he was able to cleanse the world. And to James's point, we too are to be purifying agents. We need to be influencers in this world to God's greatness and to God's glory. So church, for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, be in the world. Without your representation and Christ-like examples pointing this world to Jesus, this world goes to hell. So please be in the world, but not of it. James is letting these early Christians and us know that one's faith matters. Faith has to be put into action. And your faith must come alive in your speech, in your service, in your separation from the world. The next portion of scripture and text we're gonna look at, James is gonna give us examples of three different kinds of faiths. Two of these faiths are false. And only one is true saving faith. So you may need to flip a page over, but we're gonna be looking at chapter two now, verses, uh, starting in verses 14 through 17. And the first kind of faith that James mentions is dead faith. Dead faith. Let's read verse 14 of chapter two. It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. You see, even in the early church, there were those who claimed to have saving faith, and yet they didn't possess salvation. See, people with dead faith, they substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary, uh, the correct words for prayer and for testimony, and they can, even, they can even quote the right Bible verse. But their walk, what they do, their actions, It doesn't line up with their talk. They think their words are as good as their work, and they're wrong. 
You see, dead faith, it only touches the intellect. Those with dead faith, they ignore their responsibility to meet the needs of other people. They don't understand and they don't live out the expression of love and action that is evidence of a transformed life. Much like, for example, think about the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Right? Each of these men would defend their faith, right? But neither of them demonstrated that faith in works and action. And they both passed over and refused to help the dying man on the side of the road. You see, dead faith says, you know what, I care about the poor. But then doesn't do anything to actually help the poor. Dead faith says, I care about missions and spreading the gospel. But they never go to where the lost are. They never open their mouths. They never engage the lost. Dead faith says, you know what, I believe in discipleship and making disciples. And yet they never meet with young believers to encourage them and to build them up with the faith. Church family, we need to be aware of the kind of faith that is only up here. And if your faith is only in words and not in actions, then you're deceived by a false faith. And as James puts it, is dead and useless. Another false faith that James speaks of, and it kind of comes as a shock to his listeners, is demonic faith. Demonic faith. Look at uh, verse 18 now. It says, Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. As mentioned, this kind of comes as a shock to his listeners that demons have faith. Demonic faith is different than dead faith, right? Dead faith, it only touches the intellect. Now, demonic faith touches the intellect, but it also affects emotions. It says here that they believe and tremble. Tremble. Demons know and they believe in God. They know and believe in the power and the authority of Jesus. And before Jesus, they tremble. But to believe and tremble is not a true saving faith either. A person can have intellectual faith and even have their emotions stirred and woken up and still not have saving faith. See, true saving faith, it involves something more, something that is lived out in the will of a person, a faith that is, as we're in wars be labeled, dynamic. Dynamic. Look at verse 20. It says, how foolish. Can't you see that faith without any good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as scripture says, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are not shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. 
Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Dynamic faith is an active faith that involves the whole person, the intellect, right? The emotions, and also the will. As Warren Wearsby said in his exposition commentary, listen to this quote. It says, the mind understands the truth. The heart desires the truth. And the will acts upon the truth. You see, dynamic faith, it leads to action and obedience, and it continues throughout the entire life of a believer. And to help illustrate dynamic faith, right, James parallels the faith of Abraham and Rahab, which is really, really fascinating because these two are really, really different, right? Abraham is a Jew. Rahab is a Gentile, right? Abraham was a godly man. Rahab was a sinner, a prostitute. Abraham was a friend of God. Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. So what did these two have in common? Dynamic saving faith in God. And the first thing I want you to know about dynamic faith, if Abraham and Rahab have it, then that means it's available to all of us. We can all have this type of faith. So let's take a look and listen to what God can do with someone who has dynamic faith. All right, Abraham put his faith into action and he trusted God. And he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, on the altar. Abraham trusted and had faith in God. And God was pleased, and he richly blessed him for it. And he became the father of many nations. Rahab put her faith into action too, right? She hid the spies when her entire nation was going to be condemned. Right, she, she risked her own life and she proved her faith by her works. And by that, God richly blessed her and it literally saved her life and the lives of her family. Church family, God can do crazy, big, amazing things through his people when they choose to put their faith into actions, just like what he did for Abraham and Rahab. I mean, just imagine and just dream about what he can do through you when you act on his words, when you act on his command. Now, I'm not saying that your story is going to be just like theirs, and I'm not saying you're going to have this worldly success, but I do know that God has plans for you, and God can use you and I can confidently say that your life will be richly blessed as you live for his glory and for his kingdom. So as James was reminding and encouraging these early Christians that living out their faith was essential, my prayer for you all is that you too have faith that is dynamic, 
as you live for his glory and kingdom. And may your dynamic faith come alive in your speech and your service to others as you love and serve others and all while not letting this world corrupt you. So I'm gonna invite the praise team to come on up and we're gonna sing our closing song and we're gonna sing a song about the crowns that we accumulate and, and we build into our lives by the things that we do. And all of those crowns, all of those things need to be laid at the foot of the cross, at the foot of Jesus, all because of what he's done and for who he is. He is our matchless king. He is Lord of all. Will you please stand and join us?